Are you keeping track of this? Britain's new high-speed railway, High Speed 2, is a game-changer for our rail network. We've been banging on about HS2 for 15 years or so. It's hoovered up cash. Back at the beginning, £34 billion was the price tag. £45 billion pounds now. We're now looking at over £108 billion, mm. and it's not going to go to Manchester until I'm in my 60s. To £138 billion. Is the government misleading this country just to how much this HS2, this folly, is going to cost? It's been delayed. Is this project going ahead or isn't it? Because my constituency looks like an industrial site right now. I'd like to thank the Right Honourable uh, Lady for her question. Spades are already in the ground, as she well knows, uh, with HS2, and we are focusing on its delivery. Whole legs of the route have even been junked. And on Wednesday, hardly a ringing endorsement from the Prime Minister. Can you guarantee that it remains your government policy for a high-speed rail train to go from Euston to central Manchester. I, I'm not going to speculate on lots of the other things that people will be talking about. What I'm focused on today is something that The Sun in particular has been campaigning on for a long time. With another big question mark looming over the project, Labour unclear on their position, the official watchdog saying the project's currently unachievable. Could the whole thing, or another chunk, be heading for the buffers? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today is HS2 going off the rails. I'm Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. Now, Oliver isn't exactly the anorak and binoculars type, but he has been keeping a close eye on HS2 for over a decade. It's meant to be a very fast railway line. The basic premise is that it would link up London with cities in the northwest of the UK, in the northeast of the UK, at a speed that has never been possible before. And not just all within the UK, but even right down to HS1, sending you Paris way and Brussels way. That indeed was the, was the vision, that you could get on a, a train in Manchester or Leeds and not get off until you reach Paris or potentially even further beyond that. But still, even though HS2, as we now understand it, is a lot um, smaller than that, we had an announcement last month from the Independent Infrastructure Projects Authority, the government's own infrastructure watchdog, casting doubt on the project, even in its current state. Yes, we're now in a situation where HS2 is in real jeopardy. So they have a grading system for all big infrastructure projects that the UK is currently undergoing. You can have green, you can have amber, and you can have red. Now, as it sounds, red is the the most extreme (laughs) rating. Uh, Red means successful delivery of the project, and I quote, appears unachievable. Uh, Not only, as you say, do you have questions about its viability, but the government is thinking very, very seriously now about whether or not to pull the plug so that you would end up with a line that once upon a time was going to connect Birmingham, Manchester with Paris with a line that won't even go into central London and won't run further north than Birmingham. And just remind us, what what was it meant to cost and what's the current current tally? (laughs) So when David Cameron sort of first gave the go-ahead to the line in, in 2010, the plan was that it wouldn't cost more than 30 billion pounds and that was for a project which was 
much, much more advanced than the one that we have at present. At that point, yeah, the line was not only going to run to Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield, but it was also going to link up with Heathrow, so you'd be able to go directly from Leeds to Heathrow. It was also, as we alluded to earlier, going to link up with the HS1 line, which is the the high-speed line which is in operation that goes to the the Channel Tunnel. That seems remarkably good value for money now, but we still, if we're honest, don't know what the latest estimates of the cost of HS2 is. The current estimate is $71 But since that was done, prices have gone up very significantly. Mm. And a lot of people think that when those revised costs come, which we're expecting later this year, the total cost of the line will be over $100 Gosh, so from just over 30 to around 100 Yeah. Incredible. And is it even possible to drag it back if cost is the issue, which the Independent Infrastructure and Projects Authority says makes this, quote, unachievable. Yes, indeed. The question is, you know, if you cut here and you cut there, are you achieving anywhere near what you wanted to achieve? And is what you're achieving worth spending the money on? Hmm. There is no question that you can physically create this line, despite the disruption, the anger of residents and the cost. But is it worth it? Hmm. You mentioned David Cameron there, but of course, HS2 was born out of even before the Cameron era, wasn't it? It was a Gordon Brown thing. It was a Gordon Brown thing. I mean, to be honest, you can go back even further than that. The idea of these high-speed rail links go right back to the 1980s when the French were rolling out the TGV system. And there was this sort of sense of, well, if they've got it, why can't we? Hmm. For many, many years, it was sort of talked about, there was prevarications. And then, of course, you had the priority, which was HS1, which was to link the Channel Tunnel with London. But that, again, was a a project that was beset by delays and cost overruns. So it's been a a long and trackered record of of high-speed rail in the UK. But what is the political theory behind high-speed rail as opposed to just normal rail? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And yeah, I suppose in a word, uh, unpolitical word, it's sexy. (laughs) It's easy to sell to voters. You know, oh, we're just going to create another train line. Voters say, well, we've got a train line between London and Manchester. Why do we need another one? Um, Where if you say you're going to give them a a sort of whizzy high speed line where you'll be able to travel at 248 miles an hour, then it's something that politicians can sell to voters. And this is one of the, the big stories around HS2 and one of perhaps the big mistakes around HS2 because, as you allude to, the original premise wasn't entirely based upon the need for speed. It was on the fact that the West Coast mainline, which currently links Euston with Birmingham to Liverpool and Manchester, was getting increasingly full. It was getting increasingly ragged. This was not a line that was sustainable for the UK needs in the longer term. And There was a choice there. Do you rebuild the line and force existing commuters onto the horrid, hated rail replacement bus service? Mm. Or do you just start again with a new line? And then if you're going to start again with a new line, why not build a fast line? But, and this is the big point, politicians didn't make that argument to begin with. They sold it as all about speed rather than all about capacity. And that was one of the great problems from the outset with HS2 that really came Hmm. back to bite them. And also it was sort of levelling up before we called it levelling up, wasn't it? Because I guess London will have had the Jubilee line and, you know, the M25 and even now the Elizabeth line. So it's a sort of, you know, we need transport in the north as well. Yes. Although arguably people in the north were saying that they needed better 
east-west links between, you know, Manchester and Leeds and Hull and Liverpool. So I'm I, I slightly sceptical about the argument of it being a levelling up project, because I think if you looked at it in the round, you could see projects that were perhaps more valuable to the north than linking, making a new line to the capital. And was it very much in line with a sort of Gordon Brown approach to matters? Does it, does it clearly have his fingerprints on it, the fact that it started under his premiership? You know, <laughs> success has as many fathers, failures doesn't. I think it's a bit harsh to blame Gordon Brown. The project began under the Conservatives. Mm. And part of the reason it began under the Conservatives is that David Cameron didn't want to give the go-ahead to a third runway at Heathrow. But if you create a high-speed line with the rest of the UK, people that need to travel to Heathrow don't need to do those interconnecting flights from Manchester or Edinburgh. They can just take the train. So I think David Cameron deserves his share of responsibility. Boris Johnson shares a degree of responsibility, as does Theresa May. Everyone who has had that... Anyone who's been anywhere near it. (laughs) Anyone who's been anywhere near it. You know, they've sort of pushed it down the road. And as a consequence, it's a sort of white elephant that's become unstoppable. Yeah. And when did it start to come off the rails, Bumtish? When, when did things start to go a bit sort of sour with it? The first real warning signs were probably in 2013. Back then, there was a report by the National Audit Office who questioned the original £16 billion cost of the London to Birmingham route. And they said that costing had been based on what they described as a tabletop exercise Hmm. without any regard to the kind of real-life problems that building the line was likely to encounter. And then, even just a few more years later, in 2017 as he was then Transport Secretary Chris Grayling. He's accused of, of what, of hiding details of, of the budget in a report? Yeah, I mean, there have been a series of reports <laughs> across this whole period. And at various different stages, some politicians have decided that, well, we need a reset. Let's be honest about what we think it's going to cost. Mm. And then the costs have gone massively up. But at that point, they say, well, we've got loads of contingency in here. This is all going to work. And then, yeah, you have other politicians, as you alluded to, Chris Grayling, who just want to get through their time in office without it being a problem. (laughs) But overall, no one has really said, okay, let's just call a halt now. And we should say that at the time, the Department for Transport said, the information that Chris Grayling had redacted in that report was commercially sensitive and that Mr Grayling had the final say on redactions. So, Ollie, we're now in a situation where when shovels actually went into the ground and progress started being made, who is responsible from that point onwards when everything is signed, sealed and delivered from Parliament and government? Who's then accountable? Well, I think this is one of the problems because... The answer to your question is no one is is truly accountable. So the government set up HS2 Limited, which was a, a company to deliver the line. They in turn hired a series of sort of large scale contractors to deliver certain sections of the line. But it's very easy to blame contractors for taking excessive profits, milking it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that belies a wider problem and the reason why HS2 is so much more expensive than it was meant to be was in the specification of the kind of line that we were going to build. If you wanted to create a high-speed line, you could do so much more quickly 
and much more cheaply than the current HS2 project. But what's happened is, you know, this is a crowded island. And in response to perfectly legitimate concerns from residents living nearby where the line has gone, the specification has changed massively from the beginning desk level exercise. So, for example, the amount of tunneling that they've had to do has just gone up exponentially. And talking to people about it, they say that tunneling is the one thing that has pushed costs up more than anything else because they are unbelievably expensive. Mm. And yet even with a tabletop exercise, as you referred to earlier on, where you're not necessarily engaging that much with the real world and how this might work, you'd think there'd be a reasonable assumption of, well, there'll need to be a, a certain number of homes bought and demolished to let the line go through. There's going to be a certain amount of tunnelling, even just looking at a sort of basic OS map. There's going to be even graveyards and protected woodland that we might have to cut through. How is this missed in the thinking? No, I agree. The question to which I do not know the answer is to what extent was it missed and to what extent was it ignored? There is a tendency in government that people are enthusiastic about a project. They want it to go ahead. They know that if they say this project's going to cost a hundred billion pounds, no one will ever agree to that. Hmm. If they say this project is going to cost thirty billion pounds, people think, "Ooh, that's not too bad. That sounds like that's worth doing." Hmm. So they get the go ahead, and that is the way that for many years big infrastructure projects have worked in Whitehall, particularly the Ministry of Defence. Now, question, were those projects ever going to come in at the price that they were intended? Answer, no. And particularly in the defence world, you talk to people privately and they say it's a well-known game. Coming up, what has actually been built, what's been scrapped, and who's making money from all of this? That's just in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. the situation, Ollie, with HS2, where it's reduced from what its original plan was. Uh, it's still a live political argument. There are big question marks, even just on a basic infrastructure side of things, as to how much it's going to cost and how deliverable it's going to be. As things currently stand, where's construction? I mean, is there track on the ground somewhere? Are, do trains exist? <laughs> <laughs> It's actually making not too bad a progress in terms of between London or outer London, shall I say, and Birmingham. I occasionally travel into Buckinghamshire and you can now see what is unmistakably the beginnings of a railway. Huge viaducts. It is impressive. And everyone has looked at the project and said, look, you would be insane to cancel that bit now because the vast majority of the money has already been spent. And that's the um, difficult thing being done because I know Correct me if I'm wrong, yes. but no tracks have been laid yet. But if the if the tricky work is doing the tunnels and flattening the ground and yeah. making viaducts and everything, the, the track is is that the yeah, easy the bit? The track's I don't the know. last bit. It's not that hard to lay a track, but 
it's what you lay the track on that's the problem. <laughs> yes. So as of right now, in terms of HS2, you've explained that you occasionally go on field trips to Buckinghamshire to see these impressive viaducts and the sort of ground cleared for the Birmingham to London bit of the line. So that is well underway. What else around that has been peeled off, tweaked, scrapped? How does it shake down? So the bit of the the line that is now past the point of no return is between Old Oak Common, which is in northwest London, and Birmingham. The bit that is now in question is two bits, really. One is the line that goes up to Crewe and then on to Manchester. And then there's a second question about how does HS2 link to the East Coast main line and eventually to Leeds. So those are the mm. bits that are unclear. The other area where it looks like there may be changes is between Old Oak Common and Euston. The original plan was you know, for HS2 to, to go into Euston Station. It is going to go from Euston to Manchester, and we've said that the Euston Station to Old Oak Common piece will open at the same time as the route through to Manchester. A few months back, the, the Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, said that he was going to delay the leg into Euston to coincide with the point at which the line to Manchester opened. We understand that the government has just announced huge delays to HS2 and other road and active travel projects via written ministerial statement nearly five o'clock on Thursday afternoon. This is an outrageous attempt to avoid scrutiny for what is a very significant announcement which should have been made to this House. Now it appears that because the line to Manchester is in jeopardy, so is the <laughs> extension into central London. So it could be that, you know, you've got this sort of ridiculous train line which goes between Birmingham and Old Oak Common and then everyone sort of kicked off the line and has to get on crossrail to get into central London from Old Oak Common. So hang on, if you think about it as a Y, uh, with the very bottom being Euston and the, the middle bit of the Y being Birmingham, and then you've got these two legs going up, one to Manchester, one sort of Leeds direction, we've lost the the top bits of the Y, the left and right, and the bottom very bit has been trimmed. Yes. You've gone from a Y to an I. Quite a small I at that. <laughs> an upside down, an exclamation mark. <laughs> yes. Sort of, an exclamation mark. <laughs> and in terms of the the money and, and where it's gone, is this all just down to understandable inflation and overruns and the rest, or is there somebody making a cracking amount of cash here somewhere? I mean, certainly individuals have done extremely well out of it. Every year, the government publishes a list of public sector workers who are paid more than the Prime Minister. And, you know, when you look at that list every year, those executives that are involved in HS2 are right at the top of that list. What, just like the chief executive of HS2 Limited or is the it even more? The chief executive, the finance director, those kinds of people. And to the tune of how much? We're looking at 300, 400, yeah, even 500,000. Where is this currently all sitting politically? The Conservatives as a party are a bit split because there are a number of MPs who are very, very opposed to the line because it's running through their constituencies. And yet there are more in the sort of Red Bull seats who think that this was a fundamental promise that they made to voters. And if they're seen to be going back on their word, it will be yet another example of the Conservative government ignoring the North. In terms of where HS2 is sitting, well, it's sort of, sort of sitting squarely on Rishi Sunak's desk. And it's really telling when reports started coming out 
last week that he was considering scrapping the why. Hmm. There was nothing from Gowning Street to suggest that that wasn't the case. There are spades in the ground. The HS2 is in the process of being built. The Prime Minister is absolutely committed to levelling up. Uh, this is part of that levelling so up. So it needs to go. To, it needs to keep going to Manchester? Well, as I say, um, the uh, you know, uh, foreign affairs is my area of... Uh, yeah, but you're an MP. Now, I do know that a lot of people in his party are pretty uncomfortable with that. The other person uh, who is also in his party is pretty uncomfortable with that is his predecessor, Boris Johnson, and it wouldn't be a surprise to, to, to hear from him on this yeah. before too long. And where do Labour stand on this? Uh, <laughs> they're in a mess as well, because they're certainly not wanting to signal that they don't care about the North. But they're also aware that if Rishi Sunak does decide to, to scrap HS2, what he is likely to do at the same time is say, this will save... I pull a figure out of the air, £40 billion. Mm. With this £40 billion, this is what I'm going to spend it on. Smaller transport infrastructure projects in the north. So back to Labour's dilemma. They're wary of the trap that if they say that they will commit to HS2 regardless, it could turn into an election issue where the Tories go in saying, we're going to build this sort of whizzy line east-west, and Labour can't find the money to do both. So what they're saying is, look, the Tories have got themselves into this mess with HS2. Our policy up until this point is to support HS2, but we want to see what the latest cost estimates are before we make any final decision. Look into your crystal ball for us. Is it still possible this could shake down as as something of a success? I mean, the M25 now is broadly seen as a good thing. The Millennium Dome is useful now. It is something deep within our national psyche that we complain, shout about, condemn any large national infrastructure project. And then when it's up and running, we quite like it. Hmm. And no one talks about it again. Uh, Your point about the M25 on Evan Davis, who works for the BBC, he came from a village which was very close to the M25 that was one of those places that were utterly up in arms about the building of the motorway. And then... I think it was to sort of celebrate the sort of 20th anniversary of the M25. He went back to the village and found not a single person was opposed to it. Could you click your fingers and hope it went away? I think, to give you an honest opinion, I, it's got to stay where it is. I, I wouldn't click it away because the amount of traffic has increased so much. So I do think, yeah, we need to take a bit of a historical perspective in all this. And yet, do you think there might still be some kind of, at least in the short and medium term, some repercussions for the quite woeful management of this project over the years? I mean, I do think it's hard to sort of single out individuals for these failures. I mean, we talked about the optimism bias. That's the people who originally conceived of the project in the first place. And those people are long since gone. You know, there are many people on whom you can apportion blame And I think it would be wrong to single out a couple of people and say, or companies and say, you're responsible. I think it's much more systemic than that. Do you think you'll still be in journalism when it comes time to write a feature riding on the first train? (laughs) (laughs) Will you come on this podcast? Will this podcast even exist then? Who knows? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, which is more unsecure? (laughs) 
Um, Ollie, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. You can find all of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or by picking up a print edition. The producer was Olivia Case, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. Our email, should you have a story idea, a comment, a compliment, storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.